Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel, the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Um, we, we pick up on where we've been in Mark's gospel with kind of another perspective on this whole story of Jesus attempting to describe to the apostles what it really means to be a disciple, contrary to their own expectations, their own desires, everything that they particularly would like to see as the fruit of their commitment to the Lord. So it begins with and that after leaving the mountain, Jesus and his disciples made their way through Galilee. And he did not, anyone, did not want anyone to know because he was instructing his disciples. He was telling them, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will put him to death. And three days after he has been put to death, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he said, and they were afraid to ask him. We might hear in this echoes of the testimony of Peter when they were afraid to challenge what Jesus said, because when Peter did that, Jesus turns on him and says, get behind me, Satan, that you're thinking as men do and not as God. So what happens then is they begin to realize that they can't just spontaneously respond to Jesus um, in, in things that they don't really fully grasp or don't understand and specifically things they don't want to hear. They didn't want to hear that he was to suffer and die and be rejected by the elders, and so forth, for a couple of reasons, probably. First reason is, of course, they don't want that to happen to the man whom they're following, to the man who they kind of see as the road to their own future. Because if that happens to him, what might happen to them also? But the other point of it is for themselves, too, that they have expectations. They have entered into this discipleship with the Lord with, with real expectations, especially after the acknowledgement and the realization that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. And so they get caught up in the popular imagination. They get caught up in this whole business about who is the Messiah going to be? We know, for instance, that there's all sorts of contemporary expectations of who the Messiah is going to be. Is the Messiah going to be the new King David with great conquest? Is the Messiah going to be someone um, greater than Alexander the Great? Is the, is the new Messiah going to be someone who can strike down the Roman Empire? Is the new Messiah, who is he going to be? All of those expectations and all of those daydreams are very much a part of the popular imagination. We have no reason to believe that the apostles themselves were in some way, shape, or form not imbued also with those expectations, feeling themselves in a way pretty privileged um, recognizing Jesus as Messiah in Christ and feeling pretty privileged to be able to say that, you know, we're on the inside, we're his inner circle. So when he comes into his glory, here we're going to be. And, uh, and you know, with, with visions of inheriting the grandeur of the kingdom and all of this kind of a thing, which all of it, in a way, interestingly enough, is true. 
but not in any way, shape, or form in the way that they expected it. And that's one of the things about Christian discipleship. When we impose upon Christian discipleship our expectations of what that's going to bring forth into our lives, we're treading on very, very thin ice, exactly as the apostles were. For we have no idea what the future holds for those who are real disciples of the Lord. We know what what the future has held in the past, at least, for those who knew how to manipulate the system and knew how to play the game and knew how to do all those kinds of things. But none of that had anything to do with Jesus Christ, and none of it had anything to do with the living God. To acquire, to acquire earthly power is a very, very difficult thing to handle. And it should only be at the invitation of the Lord Jesus that someone does it, not out of their own desires, their own will, their own ambitions, and so forth. We certainly now, as we watch, watch the, uh, the church shaken to its core, we, we know, we can see what happens when people somehow or other strive and achieve those things for which we were not intended, those positions within society, within the church, for which the Lord has not prepared us and has not, in fact, called us. Because we think in terms of vocation, and we talk, you know, in as broad a sense as we can about vocations to the priesthood, religious life, marriage, and so forth. We, we, we think of all of those things as vocational. But the role we play in the world is also vocational, and it certainly depends, as these others do, upon our natural abilities and our natural talents. There are those who can live celibate lives and those who cannot live celibate lives. There are those who can live in religious community and those who cannot live in religious community. There are those capable of contracting marriage and living in the truth of what marriage really is, and there are those who do not have that ability. And so if we try to force ourselves into positions where where the Lord has not prepared us to be, it spells for us a certain amount of disaster, and disaster for others as well. If we enter marriage when we can't we're not capable of marriage, we destroy other people's lives. If we enter religious life and we can't live in community, we create havoc in other people's lives. If we choose to live celibate lives, if we, if we offer ourselves to live celibate lives and we cannot do so, we have the horrible mess that, uh, that we, we face in, in the great scandals of the church. Um, if, if we cannot deal with who we are as human persons and live virtuously that way, then somehow or other we become instruments of destruction in other people's lives as well as in our own. All of this is, uh, um, so it's, it's really kind of, uh, fascinating that all of this harmony with the Lord, that's what makes a peaceful world. That's what makes James' letter in, in, that precedes this gospel. It says, why don't, um, why don't you pray for, for what you want? Is why you don't pray, why you don't have what you pray for is because you don't pray properly. Um, it is because you have not prayed properly. You have prayed for something to indulge your own desires. And that becomes kind of the crux. What is our relationship with Jesus Christ? Is it the fulfillment of our own desires? Is that what we're all about? 
Is that what we really want and need in our lives? Or are we then to pray in some way, shape, or form for a harmony between ourselves and the will of God? This was certainly something that uh, St. Ignatius Loyola uh, strove for, this kind of harmony between God's will and our own will. Um, He kind of saw that as constructible in some kind of of, uh, structured, emotional, psychological, spiritual sort of way. And to some degree that can be successful, but we also can see from the outcome in the modern world that it is not always successful and that people can get to the point where they really think God's will should conform to them instead of theirs to God's, and then we get ourselves into all sorts of difficulties. Um, So it's a complicated thing. It's a very complicated thing. Ignatius also knew that that um, that high office was was a very dangerous thing for his for his disciples, and as a matter of fact, when uh, Saint Peter Canisius was offered the Archbishopric of Vienna by the Emperor Ignatius, told him, "You may serve one year as administrator, and that's all." Um, he said no, and. Uh, and that kind of spirit imbued him because he knew the dangers to this idea of living in a harmonious relationship with the Lord that would come to his followers if they did not heed his advice and his understanding and wisdom. So basically then, um, the great saints, in so many ways, Francis of Assisi certainly the, same, the very same way. He would have been quite distressed to see any of the brothers minor um, becoming bishops and cardinals and so forth. This was not something that he would have envisioned at all. Um, and and I think this was certainly true of so many of them. We have, you know, um, that what they really sought was if the Lord picks somebody out and moves them in directions, then that's an act of grace, but when it's contrived or manipulated, it is grievously wrong. And this is what the disciples are faced with. Here they are. Here is their man, their Messiah, their Christ, their leader. And it says that the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of men. They will put him to death. What is, how does that fulfill any of their expectations? How does that indulge their own desires? They don't want to hear this. They know they can't question it because Jesus turns on them when they question it. Um, and so they keep silent. They're not quite sure what to do. And as far as being raised from the dead... They're totally bewildered about that. We know that from other verses in the scriptures where he said to them, for they did not understand the rising from the dead. They could have understood it in a sense, in a very non-threatening kind of a sense, in the sense that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees did not. It was a constant battle between the two of them. But the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and the day of the Lord and the great day of the Lord on the Lord's mountain and so forth. It was not anything that in particular Jesus himself was talking about in reference to himself. But they did not know what that meant and they did not understand that. So here they are now in their un- awareness in in their in their own expectations their own world kind of blocking out whenever he says something that's distasteful to them and then they come to Capernaum and when he was in the house he asked them 
what were you arguing about on the road, as though he didn't know. And they said nothing because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. And here it all comes out again. They would not have even been concerned about that had they listened to the Lord Jesus, had they in any way listened to the Lord Jesus, and in listening to him, had in any way, shape, or form um, grasped what he was talking about, grasped what he was saying, that as, as a matter of fact, that what they were doing was they were indulging their own imaginations, their own desires, and that in doing so, they were planning their future. They had decided somehow or other that they were going to be the leaders and the rulers and so forth, sharing in the grandeur and the glory of the messianic kingdom on earth, either being the right-hand men of Alexander the Great or King David or Emperor of Rome, that they somehow or other would be these glorious, marvelous creatures, all of them coming from at least a, some kind of a semi-ordinary um, background. There is some kind of sense that maybe James and John were, were familiar with the upper crust of Jerusalem society insofar as during the Passion, John was able to go into the... Uh, <clears throat> John was able to go into the inner inner sanctum of the uh, where the high priests were of the praetorium, um, and so he must have been known to people of influence and so forth. But the majority of them, and that doesn't mean they were wealthy. John and James were wealthy at all, um, although they were had a family business going. Who knows how lucrative that was? But what it means is that they're pretty ordinary people. There's a lot of ordinary people who know people of great influence and power. Um, and that doesn't mean they have great influence and power themselves. And so what we, f what we find then is the dreams of little men, the dreams of little men wanting to be something they're not, the dreams of little men striving to be something that they are not and should not become. When they do, in fact, become the apostolic college of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they do become that, well, then they come in a very different way than they ever dreamed they would. They do receive the honor of the inner court, and Jesus even says to them, can you drink the cup of which I drink? And certainly I can. Well, certainly you will, he says, but they have no idea what he's talking about. Eventually, all but John tastes martyrdom, and John lives a long, long life in exile and in isolation in many ways, and lives long enough as the last living witness of the Apostolic College lives long enough to be able to look back over the century of the Lord's life and death and to be able to reflect deeply and profoundly upon it, which is what the unique characteristic of the Gospel of St. John is. There was a great tendency, um, probably back, I don't know when, maybe the 80s, uh, and uh, to speak of the author th authorship of the Gospel as, uh, as the community of the beloved disciple, without the beloved disciple even being specifically identified as the Apostle John. But scripture scholars have tended to move beyond that in several members of the Pontifical Biblical Commission. As a matter of fact, 
um, are very much accepting of the Johannine authorship of the fourth gospel, so that it does become a personal testimony, a personal witness, and a personal theological reflection upon the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So all die in the manner of the Lord by martyrdom, except for John, who is the last of the living witnesses, to peel back in many ways the covers of, 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 uh, of uh, misunderstanding and so forth, and to help us to see more deeply into the real message that the Lord Jesus left us in his personhood, in his presence, in his flesh and blood. So this, then, is what now they are discussing. The unrealistic expectations, the unrealistic expectations of little men who seek somehow or other grandeur, not because of their own greatness, actually, but because of their connectivity with someone of influence and power. And so which one of them is going to be the head man? This is what they're talking about. The Lord, in a way, is pouring out his heart to them. The Lord, in a way, is telling them what he faces, what's in the depths of his heart and the depths of his soul. And in so doing that, um, in so doing that, well, uh, they're indifferent to it. They don't care. What they care about is what they want. What they care about is their desire. They have no desire to somehow or other be humble followers of a great man they, they, who, who, who is not great in the gauche sense of the world's sense of greatness, but is great within himself. And so what happens then is Jesus, he doesn't get angry this time. He doesn't call them out and say, you know, you are Satan or anything like that anymore. He sits down and he says, listen, I'm going to give you an example. It's, it's a very Middle Eastern kind of, uh, kind of setting that they're in. Um, they can be sitting around on the mats on the floor. And as typical, you know, some child wanders in to see what's going on. Um, not unusual, not something that is not socially acceptable or anything like that. The, the Orientals loved their children, but they had no illusions about them. They did not see them as examples of humility and simplicity or anything like that. They saw them as lovable creatures, almost it's instead of he's or she's, and, um, and that somehow or other displayed kind of an un, uh, an unencumbered sense of, uh, of entitlement to be taken care of, that they somehow or other displayed this unashamed dependency on the adult world. They, they can be as, as uh, picaresque as, as anyone else, as uh, they can be um, do unseemly little things, and they can behave in bad ways and all of that kind of stuff. They're not held up as little angels by any means. Um, and they are not angelic beings. They're, um, but they are in some ways totally open and dependent upon the adult world in which they live. And because of that, the adult world in which they live takes care of them as lovable objects, not so much as little persons. 
And so basically what happens then is Jesus uses this sense of what the child is in the Asian world, in the Oriental world. Jesus uses that example to, to confound the disciples. Instead of, instead of scolding the disciples, instead of telling the disciples, oh, well, you know, um, this is not, um, you're doing it wrong, get behind me, Satan. Um, he tried that, and apparently that wasn't overly successful. But now he says, look at an example here. Here comes this little creature, comes into this house, totally unaware of what's going on around him, but trusting everyone in here to look after him, to take care of him. And so he takes a child, puts his arm around him and says, anyone who welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes not be me, but the one who sent me. And in that, he looks at them and says, in a way, that it is the Father that you are to be pleasing. It is the Father who is responsible for you. It is the Father in me who has drawn you to myself and will lead you into all the mysteries of your own life. It is not up to you to decide what you're going to become. It's not up to you to decide what your final relationship with God is all about. That is the given. That is the gift. Your task, like this child, is to simply surrender to the truth of who you are, where you are, and who you are, in fact, dependent upon. Do that, Jesus says, and you will be my disciples. For anyone who welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This goes on throughout the whole uh, institution and community of the church. If you reject a leader, not because they are wicked or evil, which you may reject them for that, but if you reject a leader because you simply don't like their style, or you simply don't think somehow or other that they're as bright as you are, or you think somehow or other that you are more uh, intelligent than they are, any of that kind of thing, that's the violation of the gospel. If you, Jesus is not a wicked man, they are surrendering to the one who sent him. They are surrendering to the Father when they surrender to him. And the beautiful part of the whole story is, is despite all of these human foibles and despite all of these long and, and arduous difficulties they go through, despite the suffering, the disillusionment, the fear, all of those things that are very much a part of their lives, despite all of that, in the end, they surrender to the Lord. They surrender with their lives, and they do so knowing that they have achieved the fulfillment of the destiny for which they were created, of the destiny for which they were born. This, for us, is a difficult concept as Christians. We live in a world where we're semi-convinced that we are supposed to be self-made people and we will set our goals and our objectives and we will achieve them one by one and we will end up where we want to end up. And all of this is supposed to be kind of the perfect world in which we live. And yet, once again, to repeat that over 50% of the people in the Western world are in some kind of psychotherapy, 
Um, so it obviously is not really the key to happiness after all. Um, that there is something more to life than our goals and our objectives. There is something more to life than our credentials. There are some things more to life than what we demand and we expect. <coughs> and that is that deep and elusive inter- deep and elusive reality of the deepest internal part of our being, which is created in the image and the likeness of the divine, which means that everything that Jesus Christ says is relevant and revelatory about our own inner selves. And that if we want to truly know who we are, if we want to live truly as disciples of the Lord, if we want to be people who have a steep sense of their own well-being and their own identity, we will hear the word of God and we will keep it in our hearts. We will understand that whoever accepts the words of Jesus Christ as revelatory, about their inner lives and their inner souls is accepting in, in truth the totality of the one who sends him, who is the Father, who is the origin and source of all that is, and who through his Son, Jesus Christ, has brought forth the created order, yourself and myself, and done so in his image and in his likeness, enliven that interior image and likeness with the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore transformed us into true disciples, not ideological followers, not political partisans, but true disciples of the living God, the one who and lives inside of themselves the deepest mysteries of reality and the deepest mysteries of human life, who experiences them somehow or other in some kind of an empathetic interrelationship with other people and with the rest of the world, who is able to internalize and to incorporate the greatest and the deepest mysteries of our lives, that's who we are created to be. How often do we build upon that our own silly fantasy world, our own little pride, prideful understanding that this is what I want to be, this is where I want to be, this is what I want to do, this is my life and my story. That doesn't mean that we reject the legitimate movements of the soul toward goals. This doesn't mean that we're not submissive in our intellects, in our minds, to the word and the power of the living God and cannot be led places by him. But it does mean that unlike the great Victorian-era understanding of the human person, we are not the captains of our ship. We are not the masters of our soul. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Veni Sancti